So hello and welcome to another episode of Interviews with Experts. Today, my special guest is Dr. Kurt Vandergrift. Dr. Vandergrift is an Associate Research Professor of Biology at the Hudson Lab in the Department of Biology at Penn State University. His area of research deals with ecology of infectious diseases and parasites in small mammals. I invite you to settle in for a wide range of discussion about small mammals. And are you safe from infection or exposure to parasites? Do you have mice in your beehive or in your equipment storage shed? What kind of bait do researchers use to live catch mice and how are specimens collected? We'll discuss these topics and much more during this extended interview about wild animals and our interactions with them. I'm your host, Frederick Dunn, and I want to thank you for joining us. Here's Kurt. My name is Kurt Vandegrift. I'm in the Center for Infectious Disease Dynamics at Penn State University, University Park. I'm an associate research professor, and I study wildlife disease ecology. Uh, right now, I'm focusing on SARS-CoV-2 and its spillover into non-human animals, but I've done a lot of rodent population biology and how parasites impact wild animal populations. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting, and I want to thank you for joining me for this interview. Uh, for those that are watching, there will be links for more information down in the video description. Also, for those who are listening on iHeartRadio and podcasts, you will also find links uh, with follow-up information on topics that we're going to talk today, because to be honest, right now, I don't know every direction the conversation is going to go, so you'll have to catch up. Uh, a lot of people are backyard beekeepers. Um we come in contact with wildlife a lot. The reason I reached out uh, to Dr. Vandegrift is because um, I wanted to know more about small mammals and because they are interacting with beekeepers, we find their nests in our storage facilities where honeycomb and bee boxes and things like that are placed. We also find their nests in uh, beehives, which I understand is new to you, Kurt, because you didn't know that they actually move in and occupy a, a, a real beehive beekeepers come in contact with them. So I think understanding what we might be exposed to as far as potential disease, uh, I'd be very interested in knowing uh, what the impact could be because a lot of the resources that are inside a beehive are consumed by people. Uh, so we have honeycomb, we have honey, we have propolis and all these other things that are inside that are enticing to the, to the mouse. And I know you have some background with a white-footed uh, mouse, is that right? That's right. It's the white-footed mouse, Paramiscus leucopus. That's the dominant species that that lives here in the northeast of the United States. And how does that, would the layman know the difference when you see a deer mouse and then this white-footed mouse? They're very similar as far as where they live and how they behave. How do yeah. we know the difference? It, it, it's it's complicated. And even yes. us mouse biologists don't always get it right. Uh, the difference between a deer mouse, which is primarily the Western species, and the white-footed mouse is, is you know, they have a, a more strongly bicolored tail. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, so side by side, they're difficult to tell the difference between. I initially did not know here. And so I was looking at the tail and guessing. But then I got some money about 15 years ago, uh, undergraduate grant, and we wanted to ask the question, which species do we have? And we had 100%. We did 1,600 tail snips that we tested. And we have 100% Paramiscus leucopus, white-footed mice here. They both have white feet, too. 
<laughs> so they're so, difficult to tell the difference between. And I think it's almost better that you would say one's a west western mouse and one's an eastern mouse. So uh, what geographic area do they overlap? I think, well, you know, if you look at the literature, you'd say Virginia Tech, Mountain Lake Biological Station. They say they have both Paramiscus leucopus and Paramiscus meniculitis that occupy that area. Okay. And they say that in Wisconsin, too. Um, I'm not sure. It's very expensive to pay for the tests that I paid sure. for. Now, you said tail snip. I want to know what that means. Well, we take just a tiny, tiny bit of tissue off the tip of the tail of each mouse that I capture. I do a lot of capture mark recapture. And so that's DNA that we'll okay. use. Um, we wanted to look at the evolution of the major histocompatibility complex of these animals and, and maybe be able to determine who's mom and who's dad for for these populations. Because we have 100, 105 meters square with live captures every 10 meters, every 15 meters. And we mark all the animals, we take samples, we put a passive induced transponder in their back, just like you do with your cats and your dogs. So you can scan them, they get an mm -hmm. eight number. And then we come back two weeks later and we collect the same samples and, and we essentially get the whole population marked. So we're following these individuals through time and we're taking blood feces, urine, skin, and saliva from each of them each time we capture them. And so we can sort of go back and test those samples and watch the parasites flow through the populations. We also count how many ticks and fleas and mites and mobile mites and bot flies and we collect their feces and we do a fecal egg count to see what species of gastrointestinal parasites they have. And uh, yeah, we really very closely monitor these populations. And then we can manipulate them too. So when you, there, there was six years where every mouse on these six grids or these six populations got treated with an oral dewormer. And then we were asking, what are the impacts that the, the worms have on the populations? So okay. next time they get caught, they get dewormed. If they get dewormed, do they have more pups per litter? Mm -hmm. Or do they gain body mass? Do they survive longer? Do they breed more frequently? Um, what happens with mouse density? Does density go up because of the increased breeding? Yeah. So it's those kind of questions. So that, that that's the sort of thing that I'm interested in. Have you drawn those conclusions? Was there a... The, the worms seem to have an impact on mouse um, survival in males, and they 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 seem to breed a lot more. Male mice can drop their testes down and suck them back up into their stomach, so they their testes are more frequently descended than um, on when they're dewormed. Um, we didn't see the kind of density impacts that we expected to see, and that mm -hmm. we've seen some other species, and I think that that's because we're deworming a 105 meter square population on a huge mountain. Mm -hmm. and though you may be able to change that situation for those individual, those individuals in that population or in those six populations, you're not changing the mountain level process. There are mm -hmm. a lot of mice, you know, that surround those grids that aren't dewormed. And so it would be, I think it would be cool to do the whole ridge <laughs> to pick six ridges and put out the wormer and mm -hmm. you know try to change the mountain level process and then i think we might see some of the density impacts but we were surprised that we didn't see any density impacts so in the grid area that you lay out for the test group that you're sampling what is the density of deer mice there 
Like, what are we looking at? It can be variable. That's another another one of the questions that we're asking is why. Some years do we have mice absolutely everywhere? So in my grids that have been trapped since 2003, the, most years we start with about eight in, in April, and it goes up to like 30, 35, maybe 45, and then and by, by August, and then in the the um in the autumn, it's you know, it either goes up to 45 or it drops back down to eight. And then in the year 2018, we had 185 on one grid. So that's you know, well more than one mouse per meter. That's a lot of mice. Yeah. So so uh I already don't like this interview. And here's why. <laughs> I have been sharing deer mice video macro activity. I call them deer mice all the time. Here I am in Northwest Pennsylvania. And I guess in the first 10 minutes of our conversation, I have mislabeled this mouse and been. No, you haven't. So I haven't. Okay. Yeah. yeah. This is why I laughed when you asked about the difference between the two, because they're both called deer mice. Oh, good. There are two. Yes. Deer the the white-footed mouse and the deer mouse. And the deer mouse is the western one. It's Paramiscus maniculitis. And okay. the white-footed mouse is the eastern one. That's Paramiscus leucopus. And I don't know, and I probably shouldn't say, but I think maybe the people in Wisconsin and Virginia Tech were wrong, and they probably just had Paramiscus leucopus, and they didn't pay for very expensive testing. How can you? You know, I go through thousands of mice per year. I can't yeah. pay one each one tested to see what species it is and, and I, i'm well funded compared to a lot of people so uh yeah it, it's it's one thing but you do not typically as a rule in ecology you don't have two species that look exactly like each other act exactly like each other mm -hmm. in the same place and occupy the same habitat that's like mm -hmm. a rule that, that doesn't happen one out it's the other and so i was very surprised to see that they had both and I don't think they did. In fact, I made a tail wheel. <laughs> okay. I was going to try and publish some of this stuff that shows that of these mice that I tested that are 100% P. leucopus, you can see every degree of bicoloration in the tail. There's a lot of people who write papers about this, so they're very difficult to tell apart. Uh, wow. Okay. I don't feel bad now. No. And it, now, and could it, you tell from a picture, like if you had a really clear, no, you have to have the animal. I can't even tell with the animal. And in okay, fact, which one is this right here? I don't have a, a lot of, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> me neither. <laughs> um, I, since I don't have both, it's really hard for me to answer that question. Okay. I'm just glad that it's tough even for experts, so I don't feel bad. Yeah, they do, they do the same thing. Their impacts on, on beehives are going to be incredibly similar. Okay. Major, so I, a major difference is that the hantavirus mm -hmm. that spills from these species, the ones on the East Coast are rare and never have caused huge problems. Occasionally, some people get sick. Occasionally, some people die. That's from the white-footed mouse. From the deer mouse, you get Sinombre virus, which did have an outbreak in humans in 1993 and caused you know, a significant problem. Um, and that's... Uh, the the trouble and what I thought we should talk about why I thought we should talk about hantavirus is because it's shed in the urine and feces. Mm -hmm. So you know I think we don't really know this, but you you get it from breathing that in like dust. So 
what I envision is maybe there's a hunting camp and nobody's been in the hunting camp since December and you show up in March, somebody left out a jar of peanut butter and pretzel, a bag of pretzels and it's shredded all through the house and mm-hmm. there's a species in urine. And the thing is we open the door up and we start to sweep that. Yeah. So it's, it's up in the air and yep. uh, that that's dangerous. You should probably open the doors and windows and get mm-hmm. out there for a little while and let it, mm-hmm. let it air out. And, you know, I, I encourage people to wet things down because, you know, when you lift up the, the hood of your riding lawnmower and the mice have decided to make a nest out of your air filter mm-hmm. over the window, you reach in there and you grab that thing and think all those little particles are flying up through the air. All of those have rodent urine on them and they haven't. So UV light can kill the virus. So if it's out in the open likely the uv light has ruined the lipid bilayer of the of the virus mm-hmm. uh, but when it's under the cover of your lawnmower that's that's very dangerous stuff and you don't want to breathe it in and so if you have them in your bee nests i recommend you know wetting them down if you can wet them down with 10 percent bleach that'll kill it too I can't tell you how glad i am to hear you say 10 percent bleach because now we're echoing each other's recommendations good Good. <laughs> ethanol so, too. 70% ethanol. That'll dissolve the lipid bilayer of hantavirus. Okay. But just if you don't have either of those two things, water is better than not water because you're going to keep that dust down. Right. What are the risk levels? Like, because you're onto something because a lot of beekeepers will be pulling apart their equipment and it is very common to find mouse feces and evidence of the mouse having resided in their storage for throughout the winter. And then they get in there and they're sweeping, just as you described. This is very important information for them to have. And what is the risk level? So, um, because a lot of them will just think, well, that's okay, I'm not gonna do it. Should they be wearing respirators of some kind? Um, When they wet it with the bleach, the bleach destroys it. So then they're safe afterwards. Be, so yeah. dwell time. Yeah, uh, it was, they tell us to soak our traps in ten percent. So the CDC says to soak the traps in ten percent bleach for ten minutes. Okay. This is our this is our mouse trap. <laughs> I'm glad you showed that because that was going to be my question. That's that's what the, that's their recommendation. For I like that mouse trap. I particularly like how long it is because the trigger's way down the line, so it can't run back before that end closes. Could you give a demo of how that functions? So, uh, this is an Ooglon Special Number Two, manufactured in Sweden. Okay, it has a five gram counterweight here, and this, when the mouse goes up on the platform, yeah. Which is, oh yeah, I see it. Okay, down. And it allows the mouse to go through. So we leave them in the woods open like this. So the mouse can go through. But then when we want to trap, we close the back door. And so okay. it's capture and it's multiple capture. So one can go in there and then another mouse can go in after that. And I we like put it. food in there and bedding and a piece of potatoes so they have some water. Like I said, we want to keep our, ours alive so that we can capture them again. Sure. Yeah. And most times I ever caught a single mouse is 36 times. Over the course of two years. You caught the same mouse over and over. 36 times. Yeah, I've had the same issue. I've Because I do a lot of trap reviews and evaluations, live catch traps. And I had a mouse that had a very distinctive notch in its ear. And I took it 300 yards into the woods. It was back in 48 hours in the same trap. 
It was amazing. He just came over and over, which was a great testimony to the fact we're not stressing the mouse. He gets a reward, he gets released, and he comes back. What is the greatest distance? Or you just release them right where the catch happened? Or have you tried releasing them far off to see how they home? There's a paper. Gosh, I wish I could remember the author's names. But you know, some people don't want to kill the mice that are in their house, and they want to live capture them and release them. And if you take them and release them outside of your house, they come right back in. Yeah, they do. And they yeah. did a study, and it was about a mile. When they went over a mile away, the mice didn't come back. And Was that the magic distance? Yeah. But, you know, I think the mice that went over a mile probably did try to come back. It was just too far, and they didn't make it. And so I wonder, these people who don't want to euthanize the mouse, if it's not worse on, for the mouse to take them a mile away and let them try and cross a hundred other mouse's territories and get yeah. it. And, yeah. It, it and might... the state of Pennsylvania, I believe it's not legal to release rodents, right? Once they're trapped. Boy, I'm mean, the law. If that's the, I mean, I have a special permit. I have a special <laughs> permit for sure. Well, you're doing research, so you're you're cleared. But I think there is something about not releasing rodents. <laughs> Those charges would stack up. I'm not done that on my own property. It's gonna and just to see that very thing and on a very, of course, limited backyard science scale. But uh, that's really interesting. The other thing is, how did you decide on that trap? Ugon special number two. Uh, my, Could my, you spell that, Nugon Special? U-G-G-L-A-N. Special number two, S-P-E-C-I-A-L. And we got these traps because they're multiple capture, live capture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're interested in epidemiology. So contact rate is something that we don't get from trapping, right? But if we have multiple capture, then we do know that these individuals are individuals that interact with each other. They're in the, occupying the same space. Um, yeah. yeah, there's lots of interesting, you know, if you catch a female that's uh, perforate, that's ready for breeding on day one, on day two, you'll have two males in there the next day, <laughs> almost without fail. You know, So she's a magnet then. Yeah. So okay. there's a lot of things that influence how trappable they are. But like you said, they like the reward. And so they come back. I sometimes there'll be 22 mice on our grid and we'll catch all 22 on day one. And then the same 22 mice will all be in the same traps the next day. Yeah. What is your bait? We use oats. Um, Regular Quaker oats? Yeah. Like rolled oats? Yep. No kidding. We used to okay. use sunflower seeds because they were cheaper, but it's black oil sunflower seeds. That's what I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I collect feces out of the trap and it's a lot easier to distinguish feces from oatmeal than it is from black oil sunflower seed yeah so feces on honeycomb might look a little bit like this yeah should you touch that with your fingers no you should not no okay well i'm really glad that those are hyssop seeds mm -hmm. that i'm using for a visual <laughs> i was going to dump them on my tongue and ask you if this is a problem but then i decided not to yeah, you know, <laughs> you don't you don't want to. You'd ask about hantavirus, and it's 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 rare, and they're difficult questions to ask because there are lots of strains, and they're not well studied. There mm -hmm. are occasionally people in Pennsylvania that die, but there are these these different variants that I assume 
impact people differently. So Sonoma yeah. virus is very bad. It's 40% mortality. That's what they have in the West. I imagine they have a, a few more in the West. Uh, I think probably the voles and the, the different species of voles and different species of shrews have hantaviruses. And likely some of these infect us and we never know we have them. I, um, I got the VIR scan test and I was really looking forward to the results to see if I have antibodies to hantavirus and they haven't given us the results yet. It was like four oh. years ago, but I should, I, I should be able to know if I've had exposure, because if you wanted to get exposed to hantavirus, you would do what I do, you know, yeah, you have occupational exposure. Yeah. Collect, collect the feces and bring it back to your lab and mash it up and look at it under a microscope. That, that, that's what you do if you wanted to try to catch hantavirus. Uh, but for your, from your point of view with your beekeepers, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I actually watched a video to see, it looks like they have some ways online to try and keep bees, keep the mice out of your hives. That's yeah. what I'm, yeah, that's part of what I study every day, particularly this time of year, because the mice are trying to get into beehives. And that's why I have all my test entrance grids and to see how the mice chew them, alter them, see what they can get in, what they can't. And three-eighths of an inch has been my magic mouse blocking height right here. They can't get through that so far. But if we go half inch, they're getting in and they're even chewing it wider. And I have motion activated cameras uh, to catch the behavior of deer mice are incredible. They're the Olympians of the mouse world. They, they'll go straight up a wall. I've had them going straight up maple trees just at a full sprint. It's unbelievable what they're capable of. And because I have an interest in helping people keep them out of their hives, um, it also I'm also just excited about seeing their behavior anyway. And even as recent as 5.30 this morning, I have a mouse that's pinging on one of my hives, but I have cameras 10 inches from the entrance to see its frustration. I want to read the emotion on the mouse's mm -hmm. face. And, but yeah, this helps us figure out what kind of entrances should be on hives to prevent their getting in. So this is actually an entrance that's a channel. The opening is three-eighths of an inch. So even a pygmy shrew can't get through this. So this is, I would much rather have people just not have them in your hive at all ever. And it's usually a hive that's in distress. Um, that's a little smaller, lower population. But once the mice get in, of course, they enlarge all their openings and they just work their way through the lower comb. And as, as you mentioned, which is so important, they're defecating and urinating on everything and they're building that up all winter long. And it's amazing how many trips they're making in and out of that uh, hive too. And of course, they're bringing grass. Your first indicator that they're nesting there is they bring in all the grass. So, and uh, and by the way, I am open um, to having somebody come out and sample if you wanna know what they're leaving behind or what any features of the nest or what residue there is. I am of course open to any of that. Yeah. I, I like what you're doing with the uh, experimenting there. Right. Have you have you looked at any of the, of the deterrents? Uh, I test a lot of deterrents, including audio. So we have ultrasonic uh, systems that do absolutely nothing. And uh, and even like big companies, Victor Pest Control, they send me their stuff, and uh, I you know you hear people make claims about it. But if you really get down there and set up equipment and see what the behavior is, of course, we first establish that there's a traffic pattern there. 
And then we want to see if it's at all disrupted when we put an ultrasonic repeller in there and they have zero impact. What about the scent? Uh, scent, the problem is, just doesn't seem to hold up very much. There is a lot of experimentation with scents that are supposed to repel rodents, and it's too broad spectrum, in, in my opinion. I'm no expert. That's why I'm also glad I'm talking to you. Is there a scent that you know of that repels? Um, I know that Victor. I know that Victor has one. They, they. Um, I, I worked with them a little bit in the past, uh, asking them for for some some data on mousetrap sales, so that yeah. I could bigger, larger scale questions about where mice are, assuming and when mice make incursions into homes. Yeah. Uh, obviously, people go out and buy a mousetrap when that happens. And sure. So they yeah. have spatial and temporal data on this, which is proprietary data, of course. But it tells us, you know, uh, basically, mice move into the, what we already know. Mice move into houses in the fall when it gets cold. Right. Yep. That's when they sell all their mouse traps, which is also Black Friday, which is when we sell every more all of everything. <laughs> um, but that's when they sell the most, and, and and it was interesting. And I wanted to look over years and look at population cycles, and so it was really yeah. really cool source of data. But they they showed me all their stuff, and they have some new sacks that had smell. And I wondered if you, if you tried those or mothballs. Do mothballs work? Mothballs are supposed to. Uh, work. Yeah, I don't want to use mothballs around my bees. Mm. Uh, bees are very pheromone sensitive and any little thing can bother them. Uh, so we also have to assume that everything you put in a beehive could also be consumed by people. Um, and we mm. don't want to impact, if you can smell it, there are particulates associated with it and that would be moving through the hive. So I personally would like to keep everything out of the hive. And then now we're in the open air, so using a scent repellent is really suited to closed spaces. So it's not going to work very well in a beehive itself. I've heard that, you know, people a lot of times they'll use that spray foam stuff to clog up holes in their house so that the mice can't get into their house. And okay, I do have the experimental rodent impregnated repellent spray. So it's expansion foam that is. It's got those repellent scents in it because otherwise, if you just use expansion foam like great stuff and you fill a hole and you're trying to keep the mouse from going in because we explore those with uh, endoscopes. We see what the path of the mouse is. We see what kind of damage you're doing to the structure and they use they follow each other's scent. So if one's gotten in, another one's gonna come through the same pathway. Uh, but if you just use expansion foam, they'll chew right through it, they don't mind. So there's this other expansion foam that has all those properties, but also has uh, particulates in it that are repellent to rodents. Metal filings. Is that what they are? Uh, that's what I've seen people use. Okay, I can, later on, I can send you the information on the, the cans that I'm using. Um, they didn't work, so. Because mm. <laughs> so, the yeah. problem is there's a scent trail going right up to that opening, which, creates an interest point for them. It might work for the first two or three weeks, but once any of the animals start to chew on it, of course, then now they're putting down an animal scent and others follow that and they just finish it off. Yeah, I I, I think your, your, your distance, making it too small for them is based on the mouse's skull size, right? They can fit yep. through it. Yes. Yep. So I initially had a problem when I, on my first year where I had Chipmunk goes into a trap and then a mouse comes in after that. 
and so occasionally that chipmunk would kill the mouse and we didn't have many mice it was the first year and i was freaking out and so i bought linoleum or flooring material and i drilled holes to make it so that a mouse's skull can fit through but a chipmunk's yeah. skull can't fit through yeah that that worked though our trap trap success went way down because there's such a small entrance now but yeah it still worked um but I would say that 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 is a good idea because the bees can come into a very small hole, right? Correct. Yeah. In fact, what we call bee space is three eighths of an inch, uh, and that's bees can pass over one another with that kind of space. Anything smaller than that, and the bees can propolize it and seal it up, so they can alter the entrance themselves, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, the other thing is in the winter time, we want access to the bottom board of the hive so that we can also pull out or clean out dead bees so they're not blocking that entrance so there are some considerations so that three-eighths of an inch you know is what i've arrived at over many years of testing and observation with the rodents so um larger than that anything seems to get in so and the other thing is getting their head in to continue to chew so you know the next step for me is going to be to put copper plates on the front because nothing will chew a copper plate. Yeah. These get eaten in the forest. Think about that. The aluminum. Like, they're just aluminum? Yeah. I don't know whether it's, I think it's porcupines and, and gray squirrels. But you can tell that you can actually, on our long-term grids, you can actually tell like what the home range of the animal is. Because you'll see they've eaten trap E5 and E4 yeah. has some scratching and E6 has some scratching and F5 is also eaten. Yeah. yeah. So now once you find a trap with damage, do you have any, do you put trail cameras out or any kind of I have documentation? I okay. porcupines and gray squirrels. Yeah. Okay. So that's how you determine the species. I was chewing them up. Yeah. And so they're just after the bait. What are they after? It's a great question. I don't know. It's not every gray squirrel that does it. Okay. It's a, yeah. Maybe they're deficient in some sort of nutrient. Uh, it's a very strange thing. They ate so a they, whole lid. They ate a whole lid in the, in the summer. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so uh, my next question is: I'm sure a lot of people want to know what good are the mice. Now, we know they cache seeds and things like that. What is the environmental benefit of the white-footed mouse? Well, we need we need to have white-footed mice. They're a keystone species. Okay. Uh, and they're, they're, they're important for, you know, for the food chain. They're, they're feeding our foxes, our hawks, our, our kestrels. I mean, almost everything that can get a, their mouth around a mouse is, is eating mice. Our snakes, uh, weasels. Um, and the, the role that they play in dispersal of seeds is absolutely critical for our ecosystem. Um, they are a pain that they get in our houses and when we have plagues sure. in them and they're in our cars and chewing wires and uh, they are a pain for us, but they're absolutely essential. They're part of our ecosystem and, and yeah, we should not exterminate mice though. To my knowledge, I don't think there's any laws in Pennsylvania. If you have them and they're getting into your beehives and they're affecting your your livelihood, mm -hmm. you should snap trap them and, and well, live trap them and move them. You should you should get get I, them out of there. I did it. Here's the problem with with trapping for the beekeepers that are watching: uh, traps on landing boards, traps. I have a box of certain death 
that I call it. Um, I don't put those out with the beehives anymore because here's the problem. The mouse that's coming to that bait may have never otherwise visited the beehive. So when you put bait out there, they're homing in on that. Because I got all excited because I was doing landing board, which if you don't know, the landing board is the bottom board of a beehive and it's where the bees enter and depart the hive. Uh, I put traps on the landing board and I was getting three, four mice a night. And those were kill traps. Then it occurred to me, I'm baiting them. So that is drawing mice that otherwise wouldn't even be on that. So I stopped doing that altogether. Uh, the next level of that for people that really feel like they have to trap something is to put it uh, there in the path of the mouse and just not bait the trap at all. Then you know that you're going to get the mouse um, that is visiting that hive. The other thing is we have warming weather coming up. Uh, for those that are listening and are beekeepers, uh, when you get the warmer weather, your mice are outside of the hive. That's your chance to put that restriction on your entrance. In other words, if you've got an entrance that's been chewed open a little bit by mice and you know they're coming and going, don't close down that entrance until you're certain the mouse is out of the hive. So these warmer days, the bees get active. If you've got bees coming and going through the entrance, your mouse is outside. It will come back at night. So put your new restriction on during the day. So during these warmer days that are coming up, that's your chance. So trap them outside, not inside. <laughs> so. And these mice are nocturnal. Yeah, they're most. They would mostly be out of the hive at night. Well, yeah, but here's here's what they. For example, it was 18 degrees this morning. Mm -hmm. Okay, so at 5:30, I have an active mouse. Why? Because he's headed out and going somewhere else. I don't know where he's going. But when the bees start to make noise and there's movement inside, they'll kill the mouse. If once they break cluster and they start moving around and they discover the mouse, they'll kill it. Then they can't get the mouse out. So they protect themselves from that decomposition by probolizing and entombing that mouse. So we want to make sure it has an exit point. Very interesting. Yeah, it is interesting stuff, actually. And that's an antibacterial method. That is their defense to put propolis on that, which is tree resin, which is a natural uh, antimicrobial for them. Very cool. So. Yeah, this is what I didn't know about, and I was a little bit embarrassed to be an expert because I was. But the beehives are warm too, so they're going to be very attractive to mice in the winter times. Particularly at the cluster height and above it, there's warmth. Below that, it's going to match the outside temperature. And the mice make their nests in the bottom or the top? Uh, they make their nests in the bottom because they're not going to get away with doing that in the top. Yeah. So the bees uh, will see them if you give it very sparse uh objects uh, i'm looking at my desks a piece of paper a, a pen and a little bit of a, aluminum they'll make a nest mm -hmm. that's 90 degrees fahrenheit they're very skilled at making a nest that keeps them very warm oh uh, yeah they they bring a lot of st stuff in it's not random there's always there's always some certain elements to their nests which for is example like what um usually there's a bit of moss on the top of it okay they'll bring, in, they'll bring in some moss uh oh there's a whole book about all the different types of nests and and um what's the title of the book i don't know i'm sorry <laughs> I, know I just know somebody's gonna ask that's why i'm asking 
So it's a book that deals with small mammal nest material or and, and bird nests and bird nests. And bird nests. It talks yeah. about the peculiarities of the different species. And some will always take a branch from this stick and put it on the left hand side and place just so. Okay. Uh, there's there's you know, and it's a it's a book about that. So there, there's lots of these examples of very you know, flying squirrels strip the bark off of cedar trees and make their nests out of sort of woven cedar for the same reason, presumably, that we use cedar chests to keep our wool sweaters, right? There's an anti-parasite benefit to having a nest that maybe it repels fleas from their nests. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's very you don't see many things on accident, these animals. They're pretty yeah. high. Well, efficient use of resources. They have no reason to do anything extra. Um. So when, let's do a practical thing for the beekeeper. They open up a hive. What should they be wearing on their hands? Should they have respiration? Once they discover there's a mouse nest, what should their first thing that they do to protect themselves while they remove it? And then the other thing is, how and where should they dispose of the material that they find? So because I, I'm inexperienced with bees, I, don't, I didn't mention, but I'm allergic. So I have never... Yeah opened up a hive <laughs> uh but this would be the same no matter where you find a nest you uh, open them nest. so i can talk about the one in my my riding lawnmower so it's in my garage and i try to start the lawnmower and it doesn't start and it doesn't start and so i have to put the charger on and i open the lid up and there's a mouse nest there first <laughs> thing i do is go open the garage door and i'm out of there and I'm going to give it some time to air out. Okay. Change. Then, me personally, I'm going to come in with holding my breath. I'm going to hook up the battery so that I can get the thing started. I'm going to let it, I'm going to pull it outside. And then I would get my ethanol spray bottle, 70% mixture of ethanol. And I'd spray that nest, mist that nest so that it's moist. And then I'd put it in a plastic bag, tie it in a knot and throw it away. Put it in my outside trash can. Don't bring now, it. What about for your hands? Any protection for your hands? I'd spray my hands with that 70% ethanol and let okay. it evaporate. It's the evaporative process. The evaporative process that, that kills the, destroys the envelope of the virus. And okay. so you want 70%. I have students that come in and they, you know, they have the temptation. Why don't we make it 80% so it's stronger, so it kills them better? And that's actually the opposite effect. 80% dissolves too quickly. Or it, it's um, too volatile. It evaporates too quickly. Yeah. Okay. So it evaporates too quickly. So you want seventy percent. Uh, like I said, ten percent bleach will kill it as well. If you have neither of those, I'd wet it down with something else, and then very carefully pick it up and put it into something you know airtight, or you know you can carry it down into the woods, and and it's mostly going to be made of of material that came from the woods and being outside in the uv light is is better so putting it in your trash cans maybe not a great idea right you got a bag now that's got air in it and you're going to come next week and you're going to open up you're going to put a trash bag on top maybe it's going to pop mm -hmm. that's going to make a big wolf of dust you, you don't want to breathe in the particulates particulate matter that and those nests everything's so gnawed up. Mm -hmm. It's in tiny pieces and you can see it floating around. I think most of us have, you know, sometimes you go in, there's a dead mouse on the ground and it's like 
the fur is sort of falling off and you pick it up with a shovel. And even then you see there's all this particulate that comes off of that mouse. Mm -hmm. That virus should not really be living that much longer after a mouse dies. But that, that amount of dust scares me. <laughs> yeah. So I've got to be very careful around it. And, uh, you know, I don't think most people have terrible exposure to rodents. We don't see tons of cases of hantavirus in Pennsylvania. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be careful because we, we do see some. Right. Now, one, there would be maybe some symptoms of low-level virus that would have some impact, but not enough to see a doctor. I mean, like, what symptoms would there be? Uh, the, the It can be a pulmonary syndrome or it can be a renal syndrome. Uh, um, depending on which, which antivirus, um, mostly pulmonary are, are what we hear about. Um, and you know, you get real tightness in your chest. You can't breathe. Those people end up in the hospital and, and it's very rare that we, we get those. Um, but for some reason in 1993, there was a real outbreak and, uh, we kind of threw the American Indians under the bus, I think it's the Navajo tribe that was out there. And what the Navajos do when that happens is they burn everything. And we discounted that and we blamed it on Indians and it was really pretty sad. And what we should have done is listen mm -hmm. because it wasn't their first rodeo. You know, mm -hmm. they, they, they'd been dealing with this occasionally and they, they know how to stop it from killing them. And so we we didn't know how to act. This was this was a you know something we were worried was going to be a pandemic. The CDC mm -hmm. was there, and uh, it took a long time for us to figure out what it was that it was coming from mice. And that that's when that's 1993. So we we know very little about these antiviruses. That doesn't feel very long ago. Was that in Arizona then, with the Navajo tribe, or four four corners? So that, okay. that's where the outbreak was, where the the four states come together. Okay. Um, yeah, and I met the guy who did some of that stuff, Jamie Childs at CDC. Really good work. That at, at the end of the day, they figured things out. But you know, it's shocking when people start dying and you don't know what they're dying of, and it turns out that it's something that's not in the house now, but was in the house three weeks ago, and and poop there. And yeah, it's tricky business to work out where these things come from. We don't know where SARS-CoV two came from. We don't know where SARS-1 came from or MERS. You know, it's it's very tricky business to work out what what's allowing these things to spill from other species into ours, when it happens, where it happens. We have no way to predict them. And boy, they can really set us back. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to ask you a question about a lesser known mammal. That I, I looked you up and there was a reference to the masked shrew. Five grams. What do you know about this shrew? What can you tell us? Most people do not even know this thing exists, but they've been sitting on a log in the forest and went like this because they thought they saw something there, but then they just see a little leaf. And what that is more often than not is one of these little tiny five gram shrews called the mask shrew. It's Surex cinerus, and they're insectivores. So they only eat insects and they have to eat them really frequently. These are high, high metabolism creatures that they're detrivores. So they live sort of in the leaf litter layer. And, and there's a lot more of them than we think there are. 
they're just perfectly camouflaged. They look like a leaf when they stop. Um, and so what's their what's their range? The way that the sun hits their eye <laughs> and the fur, it makes it look like they're wearing a mask around their face. What's their home range? Yeah. I don't know that. Um, yeah, I, I do not know that. I'm not sure that anybody does. The issue with these shrews is that they're so high strung that like if they get into our trap and I were to run them into a plastic bag and anesthetize them and hold them and try and take them, they die. They just die. Yeah. And so we tend to write down what species it is and then very carefully open the door and let it let it go and walk away without making too much noise so that we don't kill them because they're part of the ecosystem that we're studying pathogen transmission in. We don't want them to die. Uh, you know, we want, we, we want that. We want, we need to be able to trap and sample all the animals, but we don't want to disrupt what they normally do because if we disrupt what they normally do, then that makes the transmission of our artifact of what we've been doing, our manipulation. Right. So we we de try desperately to keep these things alive and and, and we can, uh, but some some die. But there's not been anybody that's you know put a radio collar around this five gram animal because You're we don't tiny, have yeah. batteries. And if you were to do that, it would probably die when you tried to put the thing on it. So they're small. I would guess that they're home range. I'm just guessing. I would guess that it's probably like 20 meters it, it shouldn't be very far i wouldn't think and so they're are they found throughout pennsylvania everywhere that i've trapped I, i've caught them okay um i at first wasn't exactly sure what they were i thought maybe it was a different sorax because they were so small but i, I sent some to a, a colleague in colorado and he confirmed that they were sorax cinerous and interestingly the way that we knew that they were Sorax Cinerex before the the testing that we had to do to confirm it for the publication was by the parasites, by the gut parasites. So you can tell gut parasites are often very species specific. And so you can tell sometimes if you can't tell by what the mouse looks like, you can tell by what bugs are in the, in the gut. <laughs> so wow. we, we knew what species it was based on the parasites. Are they venomous? The mask shrew, Sorex cinerus, no, but the short tail shrew, Blarina brevicata, the one that's yes. black with brevicata, short tail, with a very short tail, which are much more abundant than Sorex cinerus. That is our only venomous mammal in Pennsylvania. Okay, the short tailed shrew. Yeah, and presumably, that venom is there again insectivores and so presumably that venom is not very strong but i've been seeing some videos online of shrews killing things like garter snakes they kill mice yeah they 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 are vicious yeah i have i have videos that i've made of them yeah yeah i, I saw a video where they, they they killed a snake okay that's not good what kind of snake was it it's a garter snake yeah, that's impressive. <laughs> I, did not, I, I did not expect that video to end that way. <laughs> but well, the, when I when I see a short-tailed shrew scooting through some pathway that the mice normally do, I let it go because he's mice, mouse control for me. Uh, yeah. The mice will all stop showing up once that thing. And they came through at a very predictable schedule. And I live trapped it at like 2 a.m. 
And I went out and released it right away because of the things you described. They have a high stress level. Um, I got the video and photography of it that I needed. And uh, I wanted to get it back out into its habitat just as quick as I could. And of course, then it showed up a day later. So I know it made it there. I think they're 80 percent loss, uh, like their winter survival is very low. Yeah, mice too. There's not. You, yeah, that was my next question. What's the survival rate of the white footed mouse like through winter? Very low. One percent. Two percent. One percent. Usually it, our trapping is a bit artifactual that, uh, you know, we, we stop whenever it snows because our traps can get buried in snow and that would be, sure. a, you yeah. don't even know where to dig to get them. Um, so we don't trap when there's risk of snow, but often years I won't have any, like in the spring, when I come back, none of the tags that we'd given on any of the mice that we followed will be there. Occasionally there's, there's one or two uh, it's, you know, Populations usually drop from about 40, 30 animals per grid to one or two. Wow. So to read your tags, you have to physically have the specimen. They don't like, there's no transmission capability of those. Mm, they're passive induced transponders. So we could set up a remote one in the forest if we wanted them, if we could get them to run through something that would record it all the time if we had battery operated. I, I wanted to move to a system like that because I really want to know where they are all the time. Mm -hmm. um, gets pretty expensive. Yeah. Doing RFID tags. Uh, I've been waiting, waiting for the right technology to come that's affordable that will allow us to know. What are the con what's contact rate? You know, uh, mm -hmm. how often? Uh, one of the things that we hope to do in studying this stuff very closely is to identify heterogeneities in transmission. So, for instance, with tick-borne encephalitis, which is a, a, a virus that infects mice and is zoonotic in humans, and it's in Italy, for instance, it it's tick-borne transmission. And it's tick to tick. They actually exchange saliva on the outside of the host. So when not, not like Lyme disease or Borrelia, where a tick bites a mouse and infects the mouse, and then other ticks that come in and bite that mouse pick it up from the mouse. Now this is um, tick to tick transmission on the host. So you have to have two ticks that are very close to each other, and it just so happens that only adult male mice that have their testes down that are only worried about breeding. They're the only ones that have that many ticks on their ears, that there are two ticks that close to each other that are able to exchange saliva. And so that's what I mean by these heterogeneities. If you can find out that it's only these three individuals on the grid that have that many ticks and you can treat them with an acaricide to kill the ticks, then you don't need to treat the whole population for ticks. You only need to treat those three individuals, and that should be able to stop transmission of that pathogen. So we want to look for little tricks like that to identify you know how how can you break chains of trans how can you break chains of transmission mm -hmm. and decrease what we call r naught which is a mathematical epidemiological number if it's above 1 then you expect persistence and spread if it's below 1 you expect fade out it's mm -hmm. the number of secondary cases that arise from a single individual case being introduced into a population full of susceptible individuals so if they don't give it to somebody, it fades out. If they give it mm -hmm. to six people, it's going to spread like wildfire. Right. 
like the shrew that you mentioned, that if it exists in the gut and it's species specific, we need that population of shrews to continue. Otherwise, the gut biome is expired, right? So then it wouldn't continue in theory, right? Unless a bird of prey eats it and it mixes in their gut somehow or? Yeah, and those species are all all key. There's there's a whole ecosystem inside of our gut. Mm -hmm. You know, there's bacteria, there's fungus, there's nematodes, there's tapeworms. I'm there's... glad you mentioned nematodes. What do you what's your experience with nematodes that are used as in soil pest control or grub control and things like that? Oh, I tend to study the parasitic nematodes more than I do the soil nematodes. I, in fact, okay. I don't study the soil nematodes at all. Okay. But I have a white-footed mouse nematode named after me. What? Yeah. So my mother wants me to have children, but I presume <laughs> name forever. <laughs> you have one named after you. Eligmosomoides vandegrifti. Oh, I can't even... Maybe you'll maybe you'll spell that for me and send it in an email. <laughs> um, um, because we, you know, there's a lot of press on nematodes being used to control um, the pupa state of wax moth larvae. Mm. Uh, and the other thing is small hive beetle larvae when they go into the soil. Uh, a lot of people want to sell nematodes uh, for people to pour into the soil that will hunt them out and destroy them before they can finish their pupation. So I was wondering if you knew anything about whether that even sounds viable. I, do, I don't, I don't know. I, uh, I think people should tinker with things and see. That sounds like a neat idea. Well, the, the problem is, you know, the people that buy them and, and think that it's going to work have no way to validate, you know, did that work or not. Uh, particularly if we're talking small hive beetles that can fly, you know, a mile to a beehive. They can yes. reproduce anywhere. Extension people should use science to determine if these things work. Extension yes. people are, is that direct? Extension, like Penn State extension. That sounds is, like. Are we talking about Dr. Underwood? What? I don't know Dr. Underwood personally, but she is extension. Okay. And so I think that that's, that's the, you know, you're right. So there's a, there's a, there's a person that's selling their own feces in a bag and giving it to you so you can walk through it so you can infect yourself with nematodes and cure yourself of your allergies or your autoimmune disorders. And you can buy that online, but whether people should really be doing that in right. a replicated way and making claims about whether that, that will work or not, no. But it is the place of a scientist to come in and design design a very carefully designed experiment to ask a question like that because it could be very useful. But there could be other concerns with someone mailing their poo in a bag from the UK to the United States. This is this is real. <laughs> this happens. That happens. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's real. Um, so yeah, I think it's the place of, of of an extension scientist to get in there and do the right experiment with those larvae and see if they're killed and if they're killed by the nematodes. That that sounds like a great plan. Do do the um, I wanted to ask: Do do the shrews ever invade the the beehives as well? Um, I haven't seen it. Um, and the thing is, they don't. You know, the shrews are bigger than some of the house mice we have around here. So. I've not seen them go in to a beehive, although you would think I get plenty of anecdotal reports that 
I found all my bees with their heads taken off and their thorax was gone. And, you know, but that could be any number of things. That's not necessarily, although that is something a shrew would do. They'll eat the thorax of the bee because it's got the most protein in it and they're protein insane. They're just after that. And uh, it makes sense that that's what they would do, but I have to see it. Um, if I knew that was going on, I started to find those remnants on the landing board because the bees will clean up on warmer days and you'll see them casting out these parts. Uh, then that's a candidate for a hive that would have, you know, video observation, motion activated cameras. And it would be very easy to discern, you know, what the cause of that was. Um, so, yeah, because not... they're pardon? Because they're insectivores, I thought that they might, but also honeybees have stingers. Yep. And so it's a it's a risky proposition. Now I've watched deer mice eat bees. Um, so I know, and there again, you know, if I sit here and say that, you know, people can say, oh yeah, well, I prove it. Oh, here's a video, 10 minutes long of this mouse coming back, like darting in at lightning speed, pausing, because then with night cameras, you'll just see the glow of their eyes. So what is it doing? It's it's jerking and speeding around. And what's it, what's it doing when it pauses? So now we have to come in with another camera. We have to get closer. So that's my thing. I, I buy cameras based on the closest focal distance. Uh, I want that in 4K if I can get it. And then when I see enough mice doing this and go into the next one, these are bees that died in the hive but were cast out onto the ground. And so they're darting around. And that I think that's fine. I like the idea that they're doing that cleanup in the grass in front of a hive. We have skunks that come through that do that. That's widely known. Um, I see possums come through. They barely eat anything. I don't even know what they're after. But uh, deer mice definitely eat uh freshly uh dead bees yeah that makes sense and uh I, I was interested in what parts they're leaving behind i wanted to know if they're eating the abdomen because if they are there would be honey in there there's some resource in the mid gut uh and of course the stinger and venom sac is in the end so i didn't get that much detail out of it and i couldn't discern that from looking at what's left over because that's the other thing come back and see what parts are left untouched and that was kind of hard to do <laughs> but uh we tried uh one of our nematodes that has is uh transmitted indirectly through a cr a cricket called the camel cricket okay and we bought you can buy lab mice that are paramescus leucopus and we put the crickets in with the mice and the mice were afraid of the crickets they they stayed on the other side of the bin <laughs> they're afraid of the crickets yeah, about half of them. About half of them wouldn't wouldn't ever eat a cricket, which was interesting. Well, there's an example too, because those are, you know, purebred mice, if you want to call it that. They're used for research. You also pay a premium for those mice because, oh, yeah. yeah, because my stepfather was at the St. Louis University School of Medicine, and uh, the top floors are all their animals that they have up there for research, and that was my favorite part to go there and see what's going on. But I found out what they pay for a rabbit. It's just insane. Eight hundred dollars to ship the mice. It's it's insane, uh, and I didn't understand, but I guess I get it. It's got to be a clean slate. It has to have nothing wrong with it. You know, he was doing enzyme research, so that was blood enzymes. Um, so I got it, but then the disposal of these things, the cost of that, that was just ridiculous to me as a teenager. Yeah. So, but then they don't behave the same as a wild specimen. So you've got that drawback.
right? Yeah, yeah, they yeah, they they have issues. We had one that would do backflips. Um, yeah, I, I actually have the ability to house wild ones now. Uh, and so you're housing be, wild what? Wild mice. Which species? White 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 footed mice. Paramyscus. White footed mice. So I had I had a grant <laughs> looking at tick tick to mouse and mouse to transmission tick to mouse and mouse to tick transmission rates. And so I would capture wild mice, put them in a, a mouse box, the same thing you use in the lab. But this this happens in, in the forest in Pennsylvania in a big fenced area that has a giant dog crate. It's actually a dog pen, an outdoor dog run that has a roof on it. And then I have big German shepherd, shepherd airport carriers. And then inside of that, I have mouse boxes. And it would be interesting to... to See if the wild ones eat the crickets right quick, like I would think that they would. I'll bet they will. Not, not be afraid of them like the lab mice were. Yeah, I'll bet <laughs> you try a lot of different things in science, and sometimes you're very surprised that things don't go the way that you expect. <laughs> Give me an example of an experiment that you set out to conduct and were very surprised. Something really extraordinary that you observed that you didn't expect. Now, this this wasn't this this example isn't my experiment. It was my colleague, uh, grad student. But testosterone is immunosuppressive, and males, like I talked about before, tend to be a little bit more uh, guilty of transmitting disease than, than females in some some pathogens uh, in some systems, and so. Because testosterone is immunosuppressive, maybe it's the testosterone ripping through your system that causes you to have more fleas or more ticks or more gastrointestinal parasites. And so they did an experiment where they took and they added testosterone to mice. We had a tubing that had crystal testosterone in it and it was sewn to their backs so that would release slowly into the animals. And he did this in the lab first and showed that the testosterone went straight up two standard deviations above the mean. Perfect. So do it in the field, go and get the blood. Everything's going well. Turns out the mice just stopped making their own testosterone. <laughs> so, oh, so, so they're, they're getting it. Okay. Really, that's right. So they say, well, I won't make any testosterone anymore. And so he kept trapping those animals all summer and looking at their fecal egg counts. And he went, he didn't have elevated testosterone anymore after two weeks. Wow. <laughs> so, you think you're doing a manipulation, and it's actually the mice that are manipulating your behavior <laughs> and wasting your time. That's very interesting. And there's something that I want to mention because this comes up a lot whenever people are catching wild mice. Uh, there are a lot of people that, yeah, I keep these as a pet now. Um, it's important to point out that you should not be trapping uh, deer mice, first of all, with their big eyes and everything. They have a lot of appeal. They tame right down, and people just want to keep them as a pet. Can you explain why that's a bad idea? That mouse could have hantavirus. <laughs> that mouse could have hantavirus, and you brought it into your house where there's no UV light and for your, you and your kids to breathe. No, right. you cannot have those as pets. You should not have those as pets. Okay. I so think, then, I wish I could say it's illegal. <laughs> I don't know. That well, but you should. You don't. You don't want that thing as a pet. Well, I just. I just wanted to get that echo from you. I believe also that a tapeworm parasite is zoonotic. So that if that mouse has a tapeworm, and I think we find about 10% of them have tapeworms, you can get that tapeworm. How does it transfer from the mouse to the person? You clean the cage and don't wash your hands and then you eat. 
and you get a you get an egg yeah. on your hand. You could you can get it's hymenolepis. It's a hymenolepis genus. So uh, then when when you get these mice that you keep that are wild specimens that you then cage up, do you do tests or some evaluation to show that they are not carriers of any of these pathogens or? No. Um, we actually were hoping that we could get some Borrelia transmission going, going through those mice. Um, we use N95 masks when we use the paramiscus pen. When, mm -hmm. I, when I'm working with a, a mouse that's in a trap that's in the wild, that's okay. We bring them back, we process them. We don't have a ton of exposure. But when I'm collecting all the feces and urine in the bottom of a mouse trap, mouse box, then that's a pretty concentrated environment where we, we use N95s when we're anywhere near that thing. Um, so no, it would be cool to test them for antivirus first and make sure that they didn't have any because you could feel a little more safe about it. But we're just very careful that we're not breathing anything. There's a lot of bleach. You can smell the bleach when you approach that place. Yeah, <laughs> uh, nothing. Guys, nothing I don't have enough water. And to, to be able to clean things, you know, you're in the middle of the forest. So there's not like you can use the hose to hose right. out. So it, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a process. How about a portable ultraviolet light that would be strong enough to sanitize? Is there anything it's like that? Enough? It's not a bad idea at all. I think, don't, I think I'll buy one of those. You don't have operated UV. I have the really strong one. <laughs> I, I yeah. You have to be careful with that sort of thing. You, you're going to give yourself, that's not good for your skin and you don't want that on, but uh, yeah, I'll have to look that up. That's not a bad idea at all. Okay. So I get credit for that method. Good, good. <laughs> for sure. Portable. Well, because we use it in aquarium culture. We have those enclosed UV treatment light systems that cycles the aquarium water through it to take out all the problems that are in suspension. But you have to slow it down so the water passes over these lights slow enough for it to be effective and so yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. But you're right, we're not telling people to do that. We're just saying could be a method in the right hands with the right safety protocols in place. So are, are chipmunks and gray squirrels or any of the other mammals or raccoons? They're pretty nosy. They must. Raccoons just, yeah, they don't. I have heard about, because people write to me and tell me all their terror, all their horror stories and raccoons that out of curiosity pull the top off a hive or something. My raccoons around here, we have plenty of them. Uh, they spend no time in the bee yard. They'll get up and look and sniff around, but they, they do no damage. We have possums that go through every single night. The only thing that will pause and actually eat bees for an hour at a time are the skunks. They eat live bees. So they'll just feast on them. Uh, so that's our only, and the way we solve that is we elevate our hives beyond raccoon reach, or not raccoon, but skunk reach, and that's 18 inches. So then that problem is solved. So we keep our hives off the ground. Um, yeah, but raccoons have done nothing. The skunks, don't, the skunks don't mind being stung? Do they, they obviously get stung. That's an area that I have extensive video on. 
In fact, I went out to place a camera one night and a skunk was actively eating when I showed up. So I just kneeled down and had another night camera and got great high resolution activity and just let that thing do everything it wanted to do because I wanted to know if it was rolling them in the grass and killing them first. Is it chewing and spitting them out? Is it consuming them, like going right into its digestive system? Because there are a lot of people that have a lot of descriptions on what exactly a skunk does. So there again, the video sequences tell the story and uh, they do get stung and they will sometimes run away, but then they come back. The bees can't see them at night to go after them. So the skunk has this advantage, which I thwarted by illuminating the skunk so that then we could get the bees to go after it. Uh, but then the skunks, whenever the white light comes on, they just walk away. So it it took away what I could have observed, you know. So the bees can't do anything at night. They they're grounded. They follow along and just climb on things. So it's very difficult for a beehive to defend itself at night. Very interesting. Yeah, but they These do get cameras are just great, aren't they? What's that? These trail cameras are just great, aren't they? Oh, these aren't trail cameras, although I have a bunch of those. Um, but I use other night cameras and even handheld cinematic cameras that have night modes with their own infrared. And I use FLIR systems also, which are all thermal. So we can also see honeybees um, are interesting because when there's a threat, uh, if they have to go out on the landing board and it's really cold out, you can see them, all their little thoraxes light up because they have to hit 80 degrees or they can't fly. So they actually warm up their little motors so that if they need to fly, they can. And so you can tell that they're in a state of readiness, so to speak, when something's really bothering them. And so we get that through the thermal scans also. And they make noises while they're warming up, which is interesting too. So we get these audio collections. So do you have a website that has some of these videos? That sounds awesome. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, the one that you're on right now. So, so. <laughs> I'll have to check those out. That sounds awesome. Yeah, because there are those are I do things that probably have no practical application to beekeepers, but are just uh, I'm interested, so I want to know, so I share about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I I admire your lifestyle and that you're you know you're doing the same thing that we do in academia. You're you're trying to learn these mm -hmm. things to improve your process and help people out. I I appreciate that you do that. It's uh, I wish more people would do that. Well, work logically towards solutions. You have to be retired to have the time <laughs> to follow your nose. Because, I mean, look where you are. You have to produce something that has merit. You know what I mean? I can just observe something, which I have, by the way, that other people have never observed. That's the excitement for me. Find something. Bees have been studied forever. If you can find a new behavior and document that behavior in a way that cannot be refuted you know and there's there's no argument here do you think this could happen all the hands will go up no okay let's watch this video and uh there it is so it is exciting that you can still find new things but our access to technology has really improved our ability to really figure out what's going on more than ever before yeah so yeah the interest time and of course having I have 37 colonies of bees that are 80 feet from where I am right now. Uh, and that's also that they're available to me whenever I have an idea. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Yeah. The uh, 
one thing that I was really, when we first started using the trail cameras, I had occasionally I'd come to a mouse trap, no bait, it's closed, there's nothing in it, and it they looked like they had a matte finish on them. Hmm. And I thought, what the heck is it? Can one of my undergrads actually be forget to bait the trap and stick it in there? Hmm. And how did it get so clean? And that's a weasel coming into the trap, not going the whole way in, killing the mouse, licking everything up, yeah, backing out of the trap. And it yeah. took me, you know, a full summer to get it set up to where I've had the camera pointed at the right trap at the right time to confirm that that's what was actually happening. It, it sort of allows you to be in the same place 24-7. Yep. And the new cameras that also have SIM cards that will send you the data. Yeah. And let you know what's going on. They're very expensive, but it just depends on how much you want that information. Right. You can get a so. tech. A text that says there's yep. a deer underneath your tree, right? Yep. And it'll even say animal, human, movement. So it could just be a windy night, right? You don't want to receive those. But they're they're very advanced. And um and you can broadcast to them. So you can actually then call your camera and talk, and your camera has a speaker. Yeah. They I don't have that my camera. I have those microphones turned off, by the way. But also my cameras. <laughs> have cameras. So in other words, I have cameras watching the site. So if somebody walked in and stole a camera, I have that information. I don't trust anybody. They, they get so, sometimes. Let's, let's make a jump uh, to rats. We have um, the Norway rat. Mm -hmm. What is your experience with uh, rat species in the wild and what what's bad or good about them? Or what do you know? Why? very rarely encounter rats here for one they they don't they don't fit in this trap right and they don't you don't really see norway rats uh, operating in the forest they tend to hang towards uh agri ag areas where there's where there's food um i've seen rat activity and we trapped around some horse barns Mm -hmm. A decade ago, we had a project where we were really trying to catch more musk musculus, which is the house mouse and also the, the okay. lab. Yeah. Uh, and when we were trapping them, you could see signs of rats there. Um, yeah, they don't fit in my traps. They don't live in, in the community that, that we have that's dominated by white-footed mice and chipmunks and these shrews and voles that we talked about. Um, they live in New York City for a couple of years. There were a lot there. Yep. <laughs> uh, there's a um, paper that came out that showed that the ones in New York City have SARS, which is interesting. But in terms of rat damage, it, and uh, it's sort of outside of my realm of expertise. I haven't, I haven't worked with them much. Excited about that for a minute because of their ultrasonic communications and the rat pack organization. And I do not like rats. Okay. So I think we might have exhausted our range of animals for today. What about jumping mice? Do you ever see jumping mice? Yeah, they're they kind of kangaroo through the grass. Is yeah. that the one? Yeah, talk about that because I have seen them. Well, there, there's there's one of those. Uh, there's two species of those: the uh, meadow jumping mouse and the woodland jumping mouse, and they're really orange coat 
color coat and they have long, long, long tails and big, big hind feet. And they do, they jump uh, boing up out of the tall grass and, and they're, they're pretty, they're pretty neat. I, I mention it because they're close relatives of the grasshopper mouse, which is a, a Colorado thing. And I, I just mm-hmm. wonder if, if those are more likely to eat bees, if they ever invade. I have not seen a single, the only time I saw them was when we're driving across a field and we've got the tractor and the headlights are on and you'll see them leaping in front of it. Yes. And that was really distinctive, really exciting. I got all the kids to look at it because I thought we were seeing something incredible because I had never heard about it. But it had that distinctive kind of kangaroo bounce to it. Yeah, it was amazing. And uh, you don't see them often, but I've never seen one around beehives. Yeah. Uh, Where are people likely to see one? The woodland one, I would look in woodlands. And the meadow one, I would look in meadows. Look in meadows. I catch catch meadow meadow jumping mice in the the forests of central Pennsylvania, but not very many. And actually, in the 23 years of trapping that we've done, there was one year where we caught quite a few of them, you know, 50 times more than we normally catch. I'd say we catch four of them per year on average. Yeah. And then I think it was 2017, we caught about 55 or 60 of them. So the the population of that mouse species is healthy? Well... It's hard for me to know. I mean, I only started looking in 2003, and they appear to have unstable population dynamics like the rest of the species, where mm-hmm. there's just a few of them around most years, and then all of a sudden, you get a year where there's five times or ten times as many. Is there a correlation with heavy winter weather or well, for the jumping, lots of rainfall? For the jumping mice, I haven't looked, but what they say for the other species are... It's highly correlated with acorn abundance in the year. Prior. Acorn abundance. Yeah. So there's a sense. Of yeah. correlative data that looks at mast index, how many acorns fell in the year prior. And how so many- then oak, oak forests would be maybe a spot where you would focus on them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I was talking about white footed mice and deer mice at that point. Oh, the- okay. The grasshopper mouse, the, the jumping mice and the grasshopper mouse, I think, eat a lot more insects than nuts and grains. Okay. Um, that's why I wanted to know if you had issues with them in beehives, if they were more likely to go into beehives because they, they're you know, I think they may, they may avoid venomous insects. Um, yeah. Because there are, like we, we already mentioned the skunk, a skunk will dig out yellow jackets in the ground. And you said, do they put up with stings? Well, yellow jackets just treat you like they're a sewing machine. And the skunks will just dig them out completely, eat all their larvae, and uh, decimate the nest and move on. It's one of the reasons I like them so much. Yeah, I like them. Anything that will do that. I mean, I would love to. That's something I've not done that's probably on my bucket list. Set up cameras on a known in-ground wasp nest and wait for a skunk to come and tear it apart. And because I know that has to be a dramatic episode. They do it all in one night. They don't come back and visit day after day and do a little at a time. They stay there until they're done. And uh, so people that want to shoot skunks and get them out of there, you're missing out because they're doing a lot of work for us. It's really good. Um, 
I would say the same thing about opossums. There's a lot, a lot coming out now about. I want to know what's good about it. Why do possums not get predated upon by everything? They walk so slow. They don't seem to care. I have a huge possum that comes through every single day. Probably a female. I don't know if she's maybe even already carrying babies. I don't know what they do this time of year. She's huge. And so what's the benefit? What is, since you're, you're mentioning possums, what There's is There's a lot the of stuff coming out now about how many ticks they eat. That, I hear that a lot too. So how do we measure that? Uh, they've, done, they've done some. So you can collect feces and you can look at uh, how much tick DNA is in there. Mm -hmm. They eat tons of them. How are they finding a tick? I don't know. I don't know. I did a, a few... Uh, a few I needed some uh, engorged adult ticks, and so I, I actually have a, a system set up where I can live capture opossums and uh, use them to attach ticks too. And the ticks don't. We only did it with two of them so far. Maybe there was a third one. The um, ticks won't feed on opossums. Yeah, they don't. We didn't have any successfully feed, and they were not all eaten either. But other people, I think somebody showed like sixteen hundred ticks a week or something like that. And they're measuring that through the feces from the possum. Yeah. yeah. Now, is it possum or opossum? I think it's opossum, but I'm okay. 100% sure on that. I they, say, they, say opossum. Answer, they answer to both. And they are, um, they answer both. And it's a marsupial. So here's my next question Do they really hang upside down by their tail on a tree branch? This I've is Disney seen, cartoons. I've, I want to know if it's true. I've not seen that. I, I, I'm afraid I can't give you a straight answer on that one. I, I don't know. But they do have a prehensile yeah. tail. Right? What if What if they got a cramp, like a leg cramp? I wake up with a cramp in the middle of the night. What happens? Do you fall on your nose? I this this is why you're here. I want <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I've never I've never seen opossums hanging from trees at night it makes me suspicious that this is one thing that we hear but i, I it would be dramatic this time of year when the trees are free of their leaves you would think you'd see this dramatic love hanging from a branch i see porcupines you know as a human species we don't tend to look up very much yeah through the forest we really don't look up and i've i try to now because it's something that people don't do. And there's a lot of porcupines up in those trees. A lot of porcupines. Now, are they showing a preference for a, a specific tree variety, species? The porcupine trees, what are they in? They're in mixed hardwoods, uh, the ones that I'm thinking about. There's just been a sort of a, a resurgence of, of all these porcupines. I'm seeing two or three at a time, uh, which I've never so seen in my life. The Fish and Game Commission brought in another species. We've got fisher cats that are supposed to eat porcupines. Mm -hmm. And I think they brought in marmots. No, um, not marmots. Pine, Mar Pine martins. Yeah. Do you know about that program? A little bit. Just What are they just, doing? Yeah. How's it working out? No, no, I, I don't know about progress. I just know that they were, they're working on trying to reintroduce pine martins. Now, if you're a... If you're a backyard poultry guy, you don't want to see a bunch of pine martins running around. Yeah. I go both ways on that. I'm I love fresh eggs, but with the way bird flu is going, I'm not sure that these backyard 
poultry barns. Uh, yeah. They, Do you they, think that will impact? I know the biggest impact is in an industry when we're talking about these huge battery operations where the yeah. bird flu can sweep through and and we don't even see that in the news, but there'll be millions of birds composted. And, um, yeah. So is that is that something that's making the rounds this year? Well, yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, I think uh, some poultry stocks moved significantly yesterday. Cal, Cal Maine uh, had a Kansas facility that got infected. You know, it's... It, if it's coming from wild birds, then they're probably poo pooing. And I don't know, how does it get from the wild birds anus into inside of a biosecure poultry facility? Right, because they practice heavy biosecurity. Even their vehicles drive through those troughs of yeah. sanitizer and, and, and their boots so, are changed and what's going on. If it's making it into those facilities, then it's a lot easier to get into your backyard birds. They could be hit direct from a dog. Correct. And Correct. chickens, you know, they're putting their mouth on everything all day. That's what they do. And so yep. do they eat some duck poop, wild duck poop? Pro probably. And have some backyard flocks disappeared due to H5N1? Probably. So the people that are listening that have backyard poultry, feed and water your birds inside the coop only. Okay. A good that's idea. The best, that's the best I can tell them. That's a very, that's a very good idea. And I, I think you know, if you have a, I think I'd also say if you have a, a weird mortality event where all your birds are dead and it, you know, it's you got to report it. Yeah, it's not a fox. You you should report it and you to tell you how to how to clean those up. I don't know whether I should I should say anything. I'd say stay stay away from it. You got to be very careful. Well, the next thing that I also tell people is uh, when you're visiting your chicken coop in the evening and you're collecting eggs, go to the far end of the coop, sit there, let everything get quiet, and listen to how they're breathing. If you hear any clicking, any respiratory distress, if you see any white discharge from your birds, if, if their posture is, you know, shoulders up, little turtling there, uh, those are all concerns. So that's just food for thought for the people that might be watching that also have chickens and bees. Those are companion animals. So, <laughs> Chickens don't like the beehives then. No, the chickens don't mind. They are my chickens. You know, I'm going to put myself on report, but my birds walk through my beehive daily, several times a day. They walk oh. right through the bee yard. They, they won't eat dead bees. I wish they would, but uh, they just groom through, which is one of the reasons I think I don't have the small eye beetles and things like that, because uh, Menorca chickens, which are in extraordinary free range, which is what you probably shouldn't have right now. But where I live, um, they are gleaning most of the resources from the environment. Yeah, that's great. I thought you were joking about them being companions. Oh, no, they are. So it's like, for all the doomsday preppers out there, which I am not, but... If you are, bees and chickens are sustainable. So they just, they, you, know, you can, you don't need anything from the outside to keep those flocks going or to keep your apiary going once you're established and you'll have resources. So, but pay attention to their health and contact your extension office if you see anything abnormal and a poultry tech will get out there and get samples. So, a good idea. Yeah, it's a good idea. Be safe.
So anything else? In closing, any last remarks, any alerts that people should know? Do you have a message for the viewers? We should keep a, a safe distance from animals. You know, if you don't if you don't need to be doing something, you shouldn't you shouldn't be having epidemiologically relevant contacts with the wild animals. They should be left to be wild and we should be left to be domestic. And if we could all do that, then we'd probably have less problems with zoonotic diseases. That, that's sort of my take home message. There's been a okay. lot of things that to... with deer and SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. We still don't know how deer are getting SARS-CoV-2 from humans, but man, are they lots and lots and lots of evidence of individual spillovers all over the United States. And, you know, deer, we don't hang out within six feet of deer very frequently. They do now because it's deer season. Well, they're dead. If you're oh, so when it's, what happens when they're dead? Well, are they safe? a deer is not going to give it to you and you're not going to give it to a deer if the deer is dead. Okay. You got to be a pretty good hunter to be the six feet range where you're breathing their air. So there's not really that much opportunity for humans to be giving deer SARS-CoV-2. And now there's evidence of deer giving it back to us. Okay, so I have a question. How is this happening? People have dogs. Dogs eat the droppings of many animals. Yeah. Especially in the country. Is there any risk when a dog is eating the droppings from deer? Shouldn't, shouldn't, well, you have to think about things before you speak. Initially, I thought, you know, any droppings that go through the acid environment in the stomach of a dog are probably killed. But then I thought, I've had my dog lick my face before. <laughs> and yeah. so, yeah, that, that's a concern. If a, dog, if a dog eats some deer poop and then comes up and you decide to give your dog a kiss, mm -hmm. you're also kissing the deer poop. And if there's live uh, SARS-CoV-2 in that, you could, you could get it. And there's evidence that people are getting it back from deer now, which is uh, a concern. So I'm going to go ahead and guess that one way that we could be giving it to deer would be by feeding them, right? Lots of people think they should throw fistfuls of corn into the backyard or buckets of apples. Let's and make a commentary about that. Should people have those corn deer feeding stations that they leave static throughout the year? No. What is, what's bad about that? Lots of things, lots of things. In the winter, if you give a ruminant animal all grain, they have real problems with their stomach. They need to have roughage, and there's not a lot of roughage in the winter. So I think it's acidosis that that can cause. Uh, so feeding, giving them grain, deer will sit there and eat it. Eat it. It'll come back to it and come back to it until it's gone, and they're not getting grass and hay, which they, they need a mixture of those mm -hmm. things because they're ruminants. Uh, so people say, yes, in the middle of winter, we need to put out hundreds of pounds of corn. That could actually go the wrong way. You might be doing not doing the deer a favor. You might be damaging them. Mm -hmm. Two, we now have chronic wasting disease in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and that can be spread. So when you put out a point source of food, all of the deer are coming to the exact same places and putting their mouths in the same places. And so you're giving providing an opportunity you're aggregating animals around one source so that you can have respiratory transmission, you can have direct transmission, you can have uh, fecal oral transmission, and 
yeah, with as many pathogens as the deer have at the moment, we don't want to be encouraging those. And so putting food out in a point source is causing that aggregation. And there was a third reason why we shouldn't be feeding deer that I've forgotten. SARS-CoV-2. We could be giving them SARS-CoV-2. If you wipe your nose and then reach into the corn bag and throw it out in the yard and the deer eats it, that's a way that it could happen. We don't. Wait, have... You're saying that a human can transmit a human disease to the deer? Well, is SARS-CoV-2 a human disease? It's a, it's it's really a multi-host pathogen. I think. Okay. I think it, it's you know it can infect cats, it can infect dogs, it can infect mice, it can infect deer, humans, bats, maybe. Uh, yeah, so we have, they, they can do genetics, look at phylogenetics and sequences of the viruses that are circulating in humans and the sequences of the viruses that are, that are circulating in the deer, and they can actually now identify, here's a human virus that appeared in the deer population, and here's a different human virus that also appeared in the deer population. And just recently, here's a a deer virus that has appeared back into the human population. And so the real worry there is that if we have wildlife that are infected with a virus that mutates so quickly, and we're not doing any surveillance, right? Nobody's checking the short-tailed shrews to see if they have SARS-CoV-2. What if they have it and it's been circulating and it mutates so much that it turns into a variant that our diagnostics don't work for anymore? Our vaccines don't work. Uh, our diagnostics don't recognize it, and our immunotherapies don't don't work against the pathogen anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. It's under our surveillance radar because we haven't been looking in these. They found that um, the alpha variant, you know, we had a Wuhan and then alpha and then beta and then delta and then Omicron. In New York, I think it was two years after alpha was gone from humans, it's still circulating in the deer. And so if those things are a risk to spill back into humans, we need to do surveillance to see which strains are out there and how they're changing. And that, that's the that's the main goal of the grant that I'm working on at the moment is to try and get all of these different species rounded up, look, if, look to see if they're exposed, look to see if they have active infections, and if they have active infections, then sequencing those to see how the virus is changing. Could be that it gets into a skunk and the virus becomes very good at, at infecting skunks and it can't come back to humans mm -hmm. but it could be that it's going to spill back and forth and and that's a that's a troubling scenario especially if if there was any hope of eradicating which have you identified a high risk animal in particular that we're most at risk of getting something from an interspecies transfer like that I think what you're asking is, are there some species like raccoons or opossums or... or uh, that are more likely, are we in more contact somehow with them or... Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of its effort and how much we've looked, right? Everybody looks for things in white-footed mice because they're so easy to mm -hmm. capture. They're right in our face. They live in our houses. Mm -hmm. those, are, those are probably more important for zoonotic transmission than, say, a bat which though they do get in our houses occasionally, we don't interact with bats and their byproducts as much as we interact with rodents and their byproducts. Yeah, we're not playing with bat guano. Not often, not frequently. And so uh, bats tend to give us a lot of zoonoses despite us not having the same contact rate. So I tend to think that there are some 
answers to your question, but I, I don't think we know all of them. Now, are you, uh, do you follow bats at all? Do you have any updates on white nose syndrome or? Uh, like I have not done studying of, of white nose syndrome. Syndrome. Some of the people that I work with do a lot of things with Hendra virus in, in uh, Australia, which is a, sort of a model system for what can you do to break chains of transmission and stop a pandemic before it emerges. So these are mm -hmm. uh, flying foxes. They're bats, but they're they're big bats. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and they in Australia have. Their habitat, eucalyptus trees, I think, have been deforested. And so people in Australia, lots of them have horses. And on your horse pasture, you have fruit trees. And so the bats have come out of the mountains down and they roost in these fruit trees and they eat the apples and things. And then they drop some drooly apple onto the ground and the horse eats it. And the horse gets infected and the veterinarian gets called and the veterinarian shows up. Veterinarian gets sick and dies too. Has that happened? Yeah. Yeah, several times. Wow. Uh, it's called Hender virus. And so that sort of scenario presents itself as a potential emerging infectious disease that has lots of links in it that you could try to break. And one of the things they considered doing was uh, reforesting, putting the eucalyptus trees back, see if the bats go back to where they were supposed to be. Bats aren't supposed to interact with horses in that way. And right. it's an effect of us wanting apple trees or what if you put a fence around your apple trees so that the horses can't get in to eat the fruit that the bats drop right and you're in australia so can you at least keep it just to australia <laughs> that's another benefit of that i think there was a, there was a grand opportunity that said identify the next emerging infectious pathogen and come up with a plan to stop it which is a pretty strong ask given that we can't do the first step. But if you were going to pick one that you had a chance with, one in Australia that goes from bats to horses to humans, there's a lot of links that you could break. And so that some people do uh, a lot of work on that. My, my colleagues are working on that. Wow. This is a lot to take in. We really covered a lot of ground, Kurt. So. <laughs> I enjoyed myself. I think it's good for people to hear hear about these things. You don't you don't often get to hear about these. Uh, yeah, I no, I think it's very valuable. Um, we really covered the spectrum here, and if nothing else, it'll inspire people to take a little, maybe a deeper look. And uh, I really appreciate the time that you gave and uh, all of your expertise. I'm really happy that we set this up, and uh, I want to thank you for doing the interview with me today. Yeah. And if you ever come across something interesting or, you know, you think I should ask Kurt, you know, my email, just email me. I'd like okay. to, I like to try and spread the word so people yeah. are informed. I think it's, we need to do more of it. So thank you for having me and uh, I had fun. Absolutely. Thanks again. I don't know. I put something on YouTube and I can't find it anymore. We had a, it was a picture of a engorged tick laying eggs sped up. That's disgusting. It was really disgusting. Wait I'm, a second. Where, that's a good question. Where do ticks, because after they feed, they fall off, right? Yeah. So then and where are they laying eggs on like they grass dig, stalks or something? They dig down into the ground. And it's amazing that they can walk when they're when the adults are engorged. It's huge. Yeah, they can still walk. They're strong.
And then they they dig down into the ground and they lay their eggs. And tons of them. And then what's the cycle? When do those eggs become adults that can then feed on other animals? The black-legged tick, which is the Lyme disease one, um, they have adults typically feed on deer, something that size. You know, they can feed on smaller ones, but a lot of them feed on deer. And they do that in the fall or the spring. And those drop off. And the larvae, the main clutch of larvae will happen mid-August here in Pennsylvania. And that's when you get tons of tiny, tiny little ticks where you get 100 of them at a time because you've walked the place where the eggs hatched. So those larvae will feed on mice and things throughout the fall. Uh, Most of them are August, September, actually. And they fill up. And they drop off of mostly like mouse hosts, uh, shrews, voles, and they go into the ground and they molt into nymphs, which emerge the following spring. I should also say that they they pick up Borrelia, Babesia, you know, plasma a lot of times from their larval blood meal. And so larvae don't typically have any of these things. They don't have them. Maybe some Babesia, uh, but they will not have Borrelia. Uh, they get the Borrelia from the mouse. Then the tick goes underground and comes up in the spring, May, June, as a nymph. That's when that's the one that gives everybody Lyme disease. Uh, and it's because they're small enough that they can't really be detected. You may not notice them and you let them feed to completion. Mm-hmm. Really inject any spirochetes until like 30, 36 hours after they've been attached. And so... I make the joke that it's like space balls. They switch from suck to blow. So when a tick gets on you, they need blood. So they're sucking in. It's not until they detach that anything from them goes back into you. And so they stay on for 36 hours. They do most of the transmission. I think it's like 90% of people that present with Lyme present in July. Uh, so the, the, the nymph will feed on chipmunks, gray squirrels, they're a little bit big to feed on white-footed mice. Mice will groom most of them off if you get yeah. nymphs, unless they're in a really good spot, you know, tucked in here. Um, and the the nymphs feed May, June, and then they come up as adults in the fall. So it's a it's a two and adults feed that fall or spring and lay eggs. So it's a two year. It's a little tiny tick that lives for two years. Now, how long can they live on? you know, without feeding? Like, are they just there on a blade of grass with their little feet out, ready to grab the next thing that walks by? How long can they do that? I don't think we know, and it's a lot longer than we think. I thought I was out of ticks. You know, I was doing these tick tick attachment trials, and we didn't have enough ticks to to finish the mice. And I said, look back in, in these vials. And the larvae, the tiny, tiny little larvae, from the year before, we're still alive in the lab. Now, that's kept in a perfectly humid vial, sterile environment. Yeah, but still, no resources, nothing for that thing. They have not had a meal yet, and they were over a year old. That's and that's terrible. the most susceptible. So, once again, nobody's really marked these things. So, I'm not sure. I'm this. I, I may be able to read about this if I would look it up, but I haven't. But the adults that you see in the fall, are they the same adults that you see in the spring? I think they are. I think they just go down and when it freezes, they stay just underneath ground. And But if you try and mark them, like if you put fluorescent powder or stuff on them, right. 
first it means that you got to collect ticks and then release them, which I don't sure. typically do. I typically collect them and then I test them for pathogens. And it's a little it's unconscionable to release these things back into the... Sure, yeah. Unless so, it's a controlled environment or something. I, I did one year mark a bunch of them with the fluorescent powder and then put them back where they were and came back in the spring with my UV light to see if I could find And I didn't. But is that because they they washed off? You know, rain would wash off. Worse than that, if you wanted to track them across their life cycle, they, they molt. So if you marked one with fluorescent powder. It's gone. Yeah. So not not the right research has been done yet. And that's one of the things, one of the reasons I like my free range chickens, because they eat stuff we can't even see with their little microscopic eyes. And they're just constantly eating little watch baby chicks walk through a yard sometime and see the tiniest things are just picking off the grass. Oh yeah. You never see a chicken with a tick on it. No. Because they would eat it off of each other. They're they're just excellent groomers and their pest control and they'll run 50 yards to get a white moth that they see in the grass so i'd like to see through their eyes for a little while yeah just uh, without their brain out you don't want that chicken brain <laughs> and that wraps up another episode of interviews with experts if you're enjoying this series please click a like or comment below there will be many more coming along I want to thank Dr. Vandergriff for sharing about viruses and how we can avoid them. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be.